Let us pray. O Lord our God, how great you are. And you are indeed worthy of all the praise that we could ever think to give you. And we've come here tonight to praise you and to adore you and to lift up your name and to tell you that we love you and we just can't figure out why you love us. Thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Help us to be the kinds of servants who exemplify that which he wants from us. We pray tonight that in the midst of all that we have going in our lives, you would be Lord of everything. Help us to center our priorities upon you. And in these next few minutes that we spend together, may your word speak to us in ways that will change us, that we will be different when we leave here than we were when we came. We are aware, Lord, that our world is larger than just this chapel at Nazarene Bible College. And we are grieved that today we lost our 1,000th soldier in Iraq. And we pray today for those families who suffer these losses. And we ask for safety and protection on our soldiers who are still there, preserving freedom for us. We pray for the victims of the hurricane and the floods, and we ask that you would minister to each of their lives. Be with our families, be with all of the things that concern us, and help us to lay those things aside for the next few minutes as we concentrate on you. I pray through Christ. Amen. Amen. And you may be seated. Some of my devotional time this past summer was spent in the book of Ecclesiastes. And although I've encountered the book a number of times across the years, I've never spent as much time there as I have the last few weeks. In fact, my most pressing memory of Ecclesiastes heretofore goes all the way back to the 1960s. I graduated from high school in 1968, and although it was a secular high school, they read a scripture passage at the convocation or at the commencement exercise, I guess they hadn't heard then of the separation of church and state. And the passage they read is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. You know the passage. To everything there is a season, a time to be born, a time to die, and so forth. Well, those words were put to music, folk song, and it was sung a lot in the 1960s. I thought about having Dr. Lambright come up here tonight in bell-bottom pants, a tie-dyed t-shirt with a band around his head, and lead us in a chorus of turn, turn, turn. <laughs> but then I thought better of it. Ecclesiastes is a bit of a strange book. It, like the Proverbs, is filled with sound bites of advice, but unlike the Proverbs, much of it is written from a negative perspective. The author is identified by title, Koheleth, which is usually translated the preacher. Now, it's hard to miss the pessimism of this preacher who seems to be writing his book in a bad mood. Listen to verse 2 of chapter 1. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, isn't that encouraging? Or verse 19 of chapter 3. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. 
As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animals. I'm telling you, folks, this guy is despondent. How many of you plan to be preachers? See your hands. Would you do me a favor? If life ever looks this bad to you, would you just simply resign the ministry and go to work for one of those companies that write the negative political ads? <laughs> but despite his pessimism, Ecclesiastes has a lot of truth to offer to us. The book is somewhat in contrast to the rest of the Old Testament. For to the prophets and the psalmists and the historical writers, if things were going well, it was because God was blessing an obedient servant. But if things were going poorly, it was because God was punishing that same servant for being disobedient. However, the preacher says in chapter 9, verse 11, the race isn't always to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. The good do suffer, and the bad do prosper. And this thinking from Koheleth is a bridge between the Old Testament concept of God and the God portrayed in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ, who suffered and died even though he was without sin. In the Old Testament, rewards and punishments were almost always meted out in this life. But in the New Testament, we learn that sometimes rewards and punishments don't come until the next life. Sometimes good people die and bad people live. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes saw that truth 300 years before the Incarnation. And so indeed, there's great truth here in the book of Ecclesiastes. So much great truth that I had a hard time deciding from which passage to preach. For instance, I thought about preaching to you from a passage with which I know you would all identify. Chapter 1, verse 18, and it reads like this. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. You've been there, haven't you, already? And this is only week two. I also considered a passage for all of you wannabe worship leaders, some of whom are people who talk incessantly between songs. You know the type? And who want me to stand for 45 minutes and, and uh, just scream at the top of my lungs. Would you please listen to Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2? Guard your steps when you go into the house of God, go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to offer anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. And all God's people said, Amen. In this presidential election year, I considered preaching from chapter 10, verse 2. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you decide which candidate needs to hear that passage. And then, of course, with the Olympics so fresh in our mind, I thought about preaching from the life verse 
of the women's beach volleyball team and the men's diving team. If you watch those venues on television, you know that the women's beach volleyball players wore as close to no clothing as was humanly possible. And the men's diving team wore those tiny little speedos that left absolutely nothing to the imagination. Well, I found out that their favorite verse is chapter 5, verse 15. A variant reading of the Hebrew text says, Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and naked shall he compete in Athens. But actually, it was another Olympic sport that formed the foundation of the backdrop for the sermon I want to preach you tonight, women's gymnastics. Their athletes are asked, among other things, to perform a routine on the balance beam. To be frank with you, the event scares me to death. I'm always afraid that someone's going to fall and break their neck. Young ladies turn somersaults, jump, dive, run, and spin on a four-inch piece of wood poised precariously above the floor. It's a grueling sport, but it's not unlike what you face as students at Nazarene Bible College. For well-meaning professors who are sitting right out there in the same seats with you ask you to do all kinds of academic gymnastics called sermons and research papers and exams and other things. And while you're doing that, you're supposed to maintain balance with that family who wants some of your time, with that boss who wants you to give an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, with the responsibilities in the church, with your civic duties, and with those telephone calls that want you to come back home for grandma's funeral. In all of those things, you need to maintain your balance. And that leads us to the title of tonight's message and to the text. And performing next on the balance beam is, and you put your name in there, because as a Bible college student, you are performing on this balance beam we call life at Nazarene Bible College. And the text is Ecclesiastes 7 verses 15 through 18. Ecclesiastes 7, verses 15 through 18. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, a righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Has the writer of Ecclesiastes slipped a cog? We all know we shouldn't be overly wicked, but he tells us here we shouldn't be overly righteous. I mean, doesn't God want us to be super saints? After all, the church of Laodicea was, was condemned because it was lukewarm. And Jesus himself said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Well, how does all of that fit in with Kohelet's counsel that we shouldn't be overly righteous? 
Well, I think in order to understand that, we need to see three things about righteousness. First, though this passage does not deal with it explicitly, it's essential that we remember that to the Old Testament believer, righteousness was almost always tied to what a person does rather than to a relationship with God the Father Almighty. Tied more to right conduct than to a condition of the heart. In the Old Testament, righteousness was measured by how many sacrifices you made, how many prayers you pray, prayed, and how much you gave in the offering. Mind you now, that was never God's intention. God always desired mercy rather than sacrifice. God always wanted to have a relationship with his creation. But many of those in the Old Testament failed to comprehend that. And so they defined their righteousness by that which they did. They failed to see the difference between acting righteous and being righteous. And Jesus had many encounters with the Pharisees of his day over that very same issue. Kohilath here is trying to tell us the same thing Jesus told us. Legalism is not what God had in mind. And my friends, if you are not careful, you will be tempted while you're here at Nazarene Bible College to measure your righteousness not so much in terms of your relationship with God as with the grades you receive, the positions in the local church you hold, and how many amens you say in chapel. Now, all of those things are important, very important. Your grades are extremely important. The involvement you will have in the local church here in Colorado Springs is extremely important. And saying amen in chapel is really important, especially when I preach. That's right. Keep those cards and letters coming in. But those things in and of themselves do not define righteousness. They may describe the righteous activities of someone who is indeed righteous because of their relationship with God. Don't get the cart before the horse. So the first thing we need to understand is that righteousness is all about a right relationship with God. But then, following that right relationship with God it does eventuate into righteous activities. And when we perform those righteous activities, we need to check our motivation for doing righteous things. Look at verse 15 again. There the preacher says he has seen the righteous men perish and wicked men live long. And it's in that context that he tells us not to be over-righteous or over-wicked. It seems to me that what he is saying is this. Don't assume that your super-righteousness guarantees you life and happiness. Some people perform righteous things because they think that will guarantee them special favors from God. They think God is in the business of quid pro quo. 
If I do something nice for God, he's obligated to do something nice for me. And that concept of God permeated the Old Testament world, and it's very much alive and well today in the 21st century. But Kohilath says, good things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people. And so if you think that because your Christian business gives a 10% discount to every church in town, God is going to guarantee you a successful year, you'd best think again. Because Christian businesses go bankrupt too. And if you think because you go to church and pay your tithe, God is going to guarantee you wealth and health, you'd best think again. Because good and godly people get sick too. Have you examined your motives for being righteous? Are you conducting righteous things because of your relationship with God? Or are you doing righteous things because you expect favors back from God? Ask yourself that question when you lay your head on the pillow tonight, would you? But the third truth from Kohelet is where I want us to spend the rest of our time this evening. It is just as he says. We need to find a middle ground between godliness and worldliness. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes, the passage says. He seems to be telling us if you're going to survive in this life, you're going to have to walk the balance beam between good and evil, right and wrong, righteousness and wickedness. Some of you, I rather suspect, are too worldly. And you need to step it up a notch in your walk with God. You say, oh, no, Dr. Butler, that surely couldn't be true of students at Nazarene Bible College who are preparing for ministry. Well, I need to remind you that the devil is still alive and well, even in the midst of your ministry preparation. And in this secularized world in which we live, there are great temptations to compromise theological and societal norms. And before we know it, we can be off into worldly things. And so I want to ask you, if someone were to see the places you frequent for entertainment, including the Internet, and if they were to hear the way you talk about God or fail to talk about God, would they be able to tell you from the most secular person who lives in your apartment complex? I get the impression that some Bible college students are trying to study for ministry incognito. Like those Hollywood actors who put on sunglasses and pull a baseball cap down over their eyes, they're trying to keep from being seen by anyone and recognized by anyone. And I get the feeling that some Bible college students just don't really want it to be known that they're studying for ministry or that they're a Christian when it could be the people with whom you work and the people who, with whom you, you associate and the people you live next door to are exactly the ones who need to hear about Jesus. So, I fear that 
some of you may be too worldly. But on the other hand, I fear that some of you may be too righteous. Your in-your-face style of Christianity puts people off. And you're so intent on winning people to the Lord that when people see you coming, they go, Oh, no! Here she comes again with that big black King James Version Bible. She's going to beat me about the shoulders with it. Always preaching to me. You need to back off. That's not getting you anywhere. Some of you are so intent on pursuing ministry that it's been a long time since you laughed. You didn't even laugh at my jokes at the beginning of the sermon. And you haven't stopped to drink a cup of coffee with a colleague in a long time. Because you're just so focused on pursuing ministry. Folks, you need to find a middle ground here somewhere. And some of you are so intent on making sure your children stay away from the evil of the world that you have them living in a cocoon. And they have no idea what the world's like. And when they hit the world, watch out. My son, who graduated from a Nazarene college, said, Dad, you could always tell the kids who were overly protected at home because once they hit college and were out from underneath their parents' thumb, they're the ones that went off the deep end. Some of you are overly righteous, and you need to chill out just a bit. You need to find some middle ground. You need to avoid the extreme." Well, there it is. Regarding righteousness, we need to remember that God is, first of all, concerned about a right relationship with us more than he is about right actions from us. Second, remember that when you do perform righteous actions, you need to examine your motives. Are you being righteous because you love God? Or are you being righteous because you think, if I scratch God's back, He'll scratch mine. And thirdly, you need to remember to find balance. Find the middle ground between over-righteousness and over-wickedness. My favorite passage from Ecclesiastes is found in chapter 2, verse 24. It's just a wonderful verse. A man can do nothing better than eat, drink, and find satisfaction in his work. Wow. Indeed, you should work, and you will work hard at Nazarene Bible College. Statistics show that 72% of you work full-time and go to school full-time. I have no idea how you do that. So you will work hard at Nazarene Bible College. But in the midst of working hard, eat and drink as well. Don't just endure Colorado Springs. Embrace Colorado Springs. Enjoy the hiking trails. Go down and see the Olympic Village. Ride the Cog Railway to the top of Pikes Peak. In other words... Maintain your balance on this balance beam we call life 
at Nazarene Bible College. Would you please stand? As we conclude the service, I want to read for you again the text. We looked for a song to sing at the end of the service, but we couldn't find one that talked about not being overly righteous. They're kind of hard to come by, you know. So we'll end once again with the text. And I want these words to ring in your ears as you leave here regarding righteousness and finding that balance. And after I read these scriptures, you'll be dismissed. And be sure to remember the offering that is taken up where we give to one another. Last year, over $2,000 was given in chapel offerings, and that money all went to help Bible college students with various kinds of crises such as deaths in the family and so forth. Listen to these words again. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Go and maintain balance in your life. God bless you.